All right, let's dig into the Beatitudes again, our seventh week in the Sermon on the Mount. The first teaching ever recorded by Jesus, and the very first word of that teaching is the word blessed, makarios, the full, complete life of God that is not dependent on our circumstances that Jesus referred to in John 10.10 when he said, I came that you might have life and have it to the full. That's blessed. Jesus' first word in his first sermon was blessed. That's to characterize the life of the believer because the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' description of the culture of the kingdom of God. The Beatitudes, the first section, tell us what kingdom people are supposed to be like. These attitudes are to mark every believer, and they're progressive. So as we begin and we say, blessed are the poor in spirit, and in the emphatic nature of the language, Jesus is saying only those who are poor in spirit will inherit the kingdom of heaven. That helps us understand that we are spiritually impoverished. We are incapable of gaining heaven through our own efforts. We need someone to provide that for us. The next step, blessed are those who mourn, they will be comforted, grows out of our spiritual poverty. We mourn over our sin. Not only do we need someone to provide what we can't earn for ourselves, we need someone to redeem us from our sin. And then we become the meek. We surrender our reliance on ourselves. We come under God's authority. We surrender to God. And then we hunger and thirst for what God hungers and thirsts for in us, for rightness. We want to live the way God wants us to live. And because we want that in ourselves, we become merciful towards others because we know it's a work in progress. We learn to extend mercy to people around us even as we're so aware of our need for mercy every single day. And that leads us to today. The next mark of every citizen of the kingdom of God, but also the next step in that journey of spiritual transformation. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. We're gonna be in Matthew 15. An excellent passage here that helps us not only understand this beatitude, but it's a good opportunity for us to see the cultural context in which this teaching comes because that helps us interpret it correctly. Matthew chapter 15. Much of Jesus' teaching, especially in the Gospel of Matthew, is set in the conflict between Pharisaical Judaism and life in Jesus. Much of the teaching of the Sermon of the Mount is corrective and it has the influence of the Pharisees on the Jewish culture in mind because it had created a sense of legalism that was never a part of the Old Testament. That's what we're gonna see in Matthew 15. And what it will help us understand is the difference between mere religion and life in Jesus. We accept the fact that sociologically, we refer to Christianity as one of the four great world religions. But from our perspective as Christians, our faith is not a religion. Let me explain what I mean by that. A religion is a man-made set of ideas, practices, and standards that has at its heart an attempt to answer the eternal. 
to connect with the divine. If you hold to these truths, if you practice these disciplines, you will see God. But religion falls short. It's man-made. And what we've learned already in the Beatitudes is that we're so spiritually impoverished, no system, no set of beliefs, no self-imposed practices can earn us heaven. And so we see the difference between man-made religion and life in Christ when we see the conflict between the Pharisees and Jesus. So now, let's begin reading just the first two verses of Matthew 15. Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. The tradition of the elders, wash your hands before you eat. I think of that as the tradition of the mother. I have these great memories of being a kid and I'm picturing in my mind a crisp fall Saturday and all five sparling kids are spread out around the neighborhood digging into dirt and playing hide and seek and kick the can and all that kind of stuff. And then it's dinner time and my dad had this whistle. I can't do it. He just could put his lips together and that whistle would fill the whole neighborhood and everybody would listen for the sparling kids from wherever they were because we'd all shout, coming! <laughs> and we'd all run inside. Of course, we'd go right to the table and what's the first thing mom would say, do you think? Go wash your hands, wash your hands before dinner. I didn't understand that all the black stuff under my nails and ground into my hands. You don't know what animals had been there. Because it was the fall, I have recollection of dried snot coming all the way up here, up, up the sleeve, you know. Mom, what's wrong with this? I mean, these were in my mouth just moments ago. <laughs> Go wash your hands before dinner. Now, here's the question. Were the disciples just a bunch of unclean, uncouth Proto-hippies? <laughs> Is the complaint here that they were just dirty? If you approached it that way, you'd actually miss the whole story. See, the emphasis here is the phrase, the tradition of the elders. This is not about physical cleanliness. Frankly, I don't know how clean the disciples were. But that's not the point here. This is about religious cleanliness. When we talk about the tradition of the elders, we are talking about the Pharisaical law, the Mishnah, the hedge of regulations that they put around the Old Testament law that God gave. They said, well, we want to get so far away from any of that wrongdoing that we're going to create a whole nother hedge of regulations so that we don't ever get even close to breaking the laws of God. And in the Mishnah, there were 200 pages known as the Tahoreth, 200 pages in the Mishnah about ceremonial cleansing. There were three levels of cleansing, and in levels two and three, there's all sorts of regulations about clean hands. So what they're referring to is that they saw 
the disciples of Jesus not practicing their religious law. Now, why was that so important to the Pharisees? Here's why. Because their following that law religiously was their hope for seeing God. You see my point? There's a passage in Scripture that actually plays into this. Psalm 24, verses 3 to 4. Let's say it together. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy temple? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. What's the hill of the Lord? It's Jerusalem. It's the temple mountain. For the Jewish person, the holy mountain was where God dwelled. The psalmist is describing that ascent to the holy mountain, the pilgrimage, maybe from the Jordan Valley, a 15-mile trek all uphill to the holy mountain of God. And the question that's being asked to the pilgrim is, who can actually ascend to the hill of the Lord where God is? Who can see God? Those who have clean hands and a pure heart. The Pharisees emphasized the clean hands. To them, the Old Testament law had become some standard that I needed to hold in order to be found righteous. In fact, that was never the purpose of the Old Testament law. The law was not given to save people, but to reveal their need for saving. But by the time the Pharisees, the fundamentalists, the legalists had gotten a hold of these laws, they saw it as a standard to keep, and so I keep my hands clean and I'll know God. But Jesus, it's very interesting. What we're seeing here is the Pharisees' emphasis on clean hands and Jesus' emphasis on a pure heart. Which is it? Which comes first, chicken or the egg? Jesus says it's not about the hands It's about the heart. If your heart is right, your hands will be clean. With that in mind, let's flip to the back of your page and you'll see three questions we're gonna ask. First, we're gonna ask, what do we mean by the heart in the first place? And then what is Jesus getting at when he talks about a pure heart? And then, of course, that last part, seeing God. So let's just ask the question, what is the heart? In Western thinking, the heart is the seed of what? The emotions, right? So when you think of heart, what words come to your mind? Love. Courage. Courage, okay. Feelings. When we hear the phrase, love the Lord your God with all your heart, we're thinking emotion. I'm not really connecting to God unless I'm feeling something, so it becomes very mystical. Now, I'm not saying that feelings are not a part of it. But in the Hebrew culture, the heart was far bigger than the emotions. The heart was our entire interior life. Not only our feelings, but also our mind and our will. Your guidance system, your whole inner person, is what Jesus is referring to when he talks about your heart. In Proverbs 4, The giver of wisdom says to the young man, above all things, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. It's in that understanding that Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart. What he's saying is, blessed are those whose entire inner life is 
pure. Let's go on and look at how Jesus replies in Matthew 15 to the complaints of the Pharisees. Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Jesus replied, and why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses his father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if someone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is, quote, devoted to God, they are not to honor their father or mother with it. Thus, you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition, you hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts, there it is, their hearts are far from me. They worship in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. And what we see in this is the second thing about religion versus life in Jesus. Religion is something you can game. When Jesus says, you make null the commands of God. He's speaking about the Old Testament law that God gave Moses. And he's saying your tradition, your pharisaical law, has created ways to get around the law of God. So you're a hypocrite. You're gaming your religion. When I was in high school, I played soccer. It was a pretty wild bunch, <laughs> our soccer team. Soccer was actually very new to high schools back then, and we were thought of as the guys that didn't want to play football. So we were called sissies for playing soccer, but I gotta tell you, there was no sissies on that team. But a lot of those guys were party hardy. The reason why they didn't play football is because they wanted to party on weekends. They also happened to be Catholic. And I found out that what they would do on Friday night, they'd go to Mass, and without telling the priests, they'd confess what they intended to do over the weekend. They'd confess it like they had done it. And then the priest would give them the penance. Their plan was, well, I'll do the penance on Monday. <laughs> what were they doing? They were gaming their religion. That's exactly what the Pharisaical law. See, legalism does that. I grew up in a legalistic structure, and we meant well, but we had our own secondary hedge around the laws of God, our legalistic list of things that we didn't do. I took uh, slips to get permission to not participate in square dance in gym class. Yeah. We used to joke, the reason why Christians don't believe in premarital sex is because it'll lead to dancing. <laughs> And you know what? As we grew up, we learned how to game the system. That's the problem with religious rules. We all ultimately fall short. We figure a way to work around it, see? Jesus is pointing that out with the Pharisees. He's saying your tradition's worthless. It's not the way to life. It's actually the way to death. Verse 10, Jesus called the crowds to him and said, now this is kind of interesting. Jesus is having an encounter with the Pharisees. They're debating about traditional law. And while they're there, he brings the crowd closer to him. And he's actually using the Pharisees as his object lesson in his sermon while they're standing there. 
Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen and understand what goes into someone's mouth does not defile them. That's about the Pharisaical law. What goes into someone's mouth does not defile them, but what comes out of their mouth, that is what defiles them. That's the heart. And then the disciples came to him and asked, uh, did, did you know that the Pharisees were kind of offended when they heard that? Jesus replied, every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be pulled up by its roots. Leave them. They are blind guides. If the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Jesus, in no uncertain terms, is saying, even though the Pharisaical law grew out of the Old Testament law, which Jesus came to fulfill, Jesus honored the Old Testament law, the Pharisees had turned that into something that resulted in death because they had turned it into a religion. Consequently, they were the blind leading the blind over the cliff. Peter said, explain the parable to us. Jesus says, are you still so dull? Don't think I could ever get away with doing that in a sermon. (laughs) Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the, what's the word? Heart. And these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person. But eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. You see what he's saying? It's a pure heart that results in clean hands clean life, clean living. It's all about the heart. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. That's what comes from legalistic religion. Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. (laughs) Pretty pessimistic view about the nature of people. The heart is deceitful, and there's no cure for it on human level. But it's that same prophet that speaks for God in Jeremiah 24, verse 7. But I will give them a heart to know me. This is what I believe Jesus is getting at. On our own, our heart deceives us because we're fallen. Our moral compass is broken. There's no cure for the heart on our own. And that's why God gives us a new heart. I will give them a heart to know me. That's why this change of life in the New Testament is referred to as new birth. Paul refers to it as becoming a new creation. New birth, new creation, new heart. What is impossible with man is possible with God through the cross. Let's look at what it means then to be pure in heart. We understand what the heart is now, but what does it mean to be pure in heart? The word pure is the Greek word katharos. Several English words you're familiar with, cathartic, catharsis. What do those words refer to? Cleansing, purging. The Greek word means cleansed or purified or unmixed and devoted. There's three points here out of what it means to have a pure heart. First, Our heart is cleansed in the new birth. 
When Christ said to Nicodemus in John chapter three, you must be born again, he's talking about a rebirth of our heart, of our inner man. When he says it to Nicodemus, you have to be born again. He pulled out a little Jewish humor. What do I need to climb back inside my mother's womb? And he says, no, no. You have to be born of water and spirit. Then he explains being born of water is our physical birth. That which is born of flesh is flesh. And you understand that, of course. When the baby's about to be born, the water breaks. And so that's what we mean by being born of water. It's not about baptism. Jesus is referring to physical birth. But you also have to be born of spirit. Your inner man needs to come to life. And it's just like birth. When it happens to you, you realize that old existence was death. You were not what you are now. This is life. That's why it feels completely new because it is. He gives us a new heart to know him. He changes our inner being. But the habits of our lives are still bound by our past life and God wants to continue to purify our lives. It's a process that we refer to as sanctification. 1 John 1, 9. John's writing to Christians, and in verse 8 he says, if you say you have no sin, you deceive yourself. The truth isn't in you. God's given you a, a, a new heart, a new inner man, but you still bring with you all those old ways of thinking and patterns. Don't kid yourself. If you say you don't have it, you deceive yourself and the truth isn't in you. But then he goes on and says, but if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sin and will cleanse us. That's the same word, katharos. He will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So when we talk about being pure in heart, it's that progression of our journey in God whereby we become more and more like Christ. We become more and more purged, more and more pure. But then there is that other aspect of katharos, which is about unmixed devotion. There is also this idea of our hearts now, because they belong to God, being devoted to him being his alone. Kierkegaard, when he spoke about being pure in heart, referred to it as this, to will one thing. I like that thought. To will one thing. So with that in mind, we paraphrase this beatitude as the following. Blessed are those who are fully turned and set toward God, for they will see him. Let me finish Jeremiah 24. We showed it earlier. I will give them a, a heart to know me. And then God goes on and says, they will be my people. I will be their God, for they will turn to me, who knows what it says, with their whole heart. That's pureness of heart. I will give them a heart to know me. They will be my people. I will be their God. They will find me. They will see God because they will turn to me with their whole heart. You see, as we become conformed through this process of becoming a citizen of the kingdom, we are to put aside other desires, other passions, other priorities that compete for the singular priority and delight of knowing and following God. 
We're to put those things aside so that we become more and more devoted to him. At the end of his pilgrimage, the Apostle Paul, who has himself gone through a process not only of radical transformation through his miraculous conversion, but you really see his own spiritual growth through the book of Acts. God dealing with things in his life. And at the end of his life, he writes to the church at Philippi and says, now I have one desire, to know Christ. So the track that we are on as God's given us a new heart, as he continues to purify that heart, the track that we're on is to put aside all those other things that mean so much to us that compete for God so that we can say like Paul does, there's only one thing I want. How incredible that not long after that, he did see God. He was beheaded, a martyr's death, and he stood before God in glorious white raiment. Well done, my good and faithful servant. There's this mention of a man named Enoch in the Old Testament in the list of generations. And it says of Enoch, Enoch walked with God and then he was not, for God took him. That's all it says. It's this fascinating thing. His passion, his walk with God had become so pure, so uncompromised, so singularly focused. He walked with God so closely. The next step in that journey was for God to take him. And there's no loss there. That's, that's reward. That's reward for singular devotion. And in the New Testament, Enoch should have been right at home in any church in any town. Because in the Old Testament, it was very rare to be someone like Enoch who had an intimate relationship with God. But in the New Testament, you're the temple of God. The Holy Spirit dwells in you. It shouldn't stand out in the roster of any church that there's a particular individual who happened to walk with God so closely. We all, it should be said of the journey that they walk with God. That is the singular devotion that Jesus is speaking about when he says, blessed are the pure in heart because they will see God. Jeremiah again in Jeremiah 29 said, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with, say these words, all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. This is what it's all about. So often, we get so far in the journey. We get the idea of forgiveness of sin, of newness of life. We get to a certain point, but then the passions of this world take over. Our love for our stuff and our careers and our our other passions, our secret passions, our dark passions, linger, and they become weights that compete for our devotion with God. God wants you to rid yourself of those things. He's after your heart undividedly. And the promise is, you go there, you'll see him. That's what it was always all about. Our life in Christ is ultimately so that we can be what we were created to be, worshipers of God, pursuing him 
above all things. He is our one true desire. May that be true of each of us, amen? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Lord, I'm just imagining how often you have been clouded from our view by the anxieties of our lives, by the problems of our lives, or by the other priorities of our lives. We let them cloud our view of you who are to be our one true, pure, and holy passion. Father, would you search us? Would you try us and see any wicked, hidden, dark thing that remains in us and then create in us a clean heart, renew a right spirit? May we pursue you wholeheartedly and in doing that, see God. Amen.